Welcome to National Parks Traveler, where we explore the national parks and the issues that involve them. What would we do without books? Sure, my sons would tell me that we could do plenty without books, but there's something about holding a book in your hands, slowly turning the pages, or closely studying a map or a photograph. And if you're talking about books tied to the national parks, well, where do I begin? This is Kurt Repencheck, your host at National Parks Traveler. My mother started me early in life on reading, and back in those days, we didn't have computers or tablets or smartphones to read on. We held hard copies of books in our hands. And I've turned into a compulsive collector of books. My collection of National Park book titles runs from A to Z, from Acadia to Zion, and numbers close to 300 volumes. So many that I finally broke down and bought a rather large library shelving unit so I could arrange the majority of those titles alphabetically for easy sorting. Joining me to discuss books revolving around national parks is John Miles, a professor emeritus of environmental studies at Western Washington University and the author of Guardians of the Parks, a history of the National Parks and Conservation Association, as well as Wilderness in National Parks, Playground or Preserve and he happens to be Traveler's book review editor. Thanks for joining me, John. Good to be here. So, so John, as I said in that introduction, um, I have a great collection of National Park books. I'm sure you have an incredible collection of National Park books. What would you consider to be the must-have books for a lover of National Parks to have in their own home library? Where to start on that? I mean, it's, uh, that's a big question. The one book that I have used probably more than any other is a book edited by Larry Dillsaber. It's titled America's National Park System, The Critical Documents. And probably, you know, that's not a general reader's book, but it's one that I've found invaluable time after time as I have been writing about or talking about or teaching about national park issues. It's just a compendium of all the critical documents in, in the history of this national park system, which goes back a century. So that'd be the one foundational text that I think I would suggest. And another one, of course, is Rod Nash, Wilderness in the American Mind. And that's not sure. about parks alone by any means, but it's about the whole idea of wilderness in American history and how that idea grew through time and influenced the likes of John Muir and many others who were instrumental in establishing the uh, national park system. And of course, we have many issues today related to the wild and the wilderness, which we may want to talk about later. And then there's a couple others I would mention. One is Bill Tweed's Uncertain Path, A Search for the Future of National Parks, which is a recent book, relatively so. Right. But it is a really important one in terms of his, he's, he's, base, he's a scholar and a, and a long-term veteran of national parks of the National Park Service, and I like his perspective on, on thinking about where the national parks might go in the future. And then the most recent one I would throw in is one that was I recently reviewed for National Parks Traveler, American Covenant, by Mike Sukup and Gary Macklis. And these guys, have, together, they had a career of probably 100 years in the National Park Service, or related to the National Park Service. So they have a perspective on on the situation today that um, is pretty unique and I think uh, right on. You know, uh, obviously I would add a couple titles to those. Um, 
Preserving Nature in the National Parks, a history. Um, the late Dick Sellers was the author of that and really kind of uh, got the Park Service hierarchy thinking about preservation of the national parks and the resources and, and how how it should all come together. Um, that was a fascinating book and uh, pointed out a lot of things. You know, uh, I think you can also look at the birth of the National Park Service, the founding years, 1913 to 1933 by Horace Albright. Um, he was right there on the ground. He has some great perspectives of how he and Stephen Mather worked to, to bring the parks um, into our collective knowledge and experience and, and some of the trials and tribulations. Um, a great one. I certainly agree on both counts. Dick Seller's book in particular, now that science and the issue of science as guiding national park policy is so big, knowing the history of how science was kicked around throughout the history of the National Park Service really gives a, some insights into the challenges we face. You know, there was another book that I read a couple of years ago. I'm not sure if uh, it's come across your uh, desk or not. First Impressions, A Reader's Journey to Iconic Places of the American Southwest. And what fascinated me about that was it it put you on the ground with the explorers as they came across places like Canyon de Chez or El Moro or Rainbow Bridge, you know, Chaco Canyon, Mesa Verde, you know, their own first-person perspective of what these places looked like as they were revealed to um, the American explorers. Yeah, I have read that. that. That's really fascinating. I mean, it it puts the whole, I don't know if the word should be development, exploration, I guess, would be a better term of, of this southwest part of the country into perspective that I, I didn't have. I'm pretty new to the southwest, actually, only been down here for, lived down here for six years. But uh, it's, a, it's an amazing story. It really is. You know, another another great one, if you're interested on wildlife issues in the national park system, uh, specifically bears, black bears and grizzly bears, Engineering Eden, the true story of a violent death, a trial, and the fight over controlling nature. Um, again, this is a couple years old, and um, the author was jo- Jordan Fisher-Smith. And in this book, he describes the mistakes that national park managers made with grizzly bears. And specifically, he, he's referring to, you know, the early 1960s at places like Yellowstone, where they would open up the garbage dumps and, and hold uh, nightly shows, and how that kind of uh, really habituated the bears to human foods and, and human presence. Just an incredible telling of uh, a lawsuit that was brought after a young man was uh, mauled, fatally mauled by a grizzly in Yellowstone. I don't know that one, but you know, there, uh, interesting you mentioned book about bears because this year there are a, a trove of books about bears and bear management and bear issues coming out. Um, I'm just looking looking at them right now. I just read one yesterday, in fact, A Shape in the Dark, Living and Dying with Brown Bears, which is not entirely in national parks, but it's, uh, it's some of it is up in, in Gates of the Arctic and Brooks Range and describes the history of the management or relationship with with brown bears in alaska so and and there's several several others in my stack that i'm just reading right now for the national outdoor book awards process that deal with bears there must be four or five of them that's an interesting thing yeah and i'm curious um one of my go-to books when bear issues came up and a couple weeks ago i wrote a story about uh um, some bear attacks in uh, great smoky mountains national park 
Steve Herrero's book, Bear Attacks and Their Causes, and that goes back to the 1980s, I believe. Does, yeah. Have we seen a real evolution, so to speak, in, in the science of, of bears and bear behavior? Or, I mean, I, I reached out to Dr. Herrero for my story and, and, you know, one of the papers that he had published, uh, I think in the 80s or the 90s, was still relevant today in terms of bear behavior. Have you, have you seen any changes? I don't know that I, that I have, although I think what we've come to as a goal, I think the goal has changed to try, try to live live with bears rather than manage them, if you will, in the sense that now we understand a lot more about the ecology of predators in general. And so the approach that people are taking to try to to deal with the bear situations all across North America and maybe even the world has has evolved somewhat. Now I'm wondering, um, you read a lot of books. Um, you re- review a lot of books for the Traveler and other organizations. What what other titles have you have you seen come across that uh, are particularly relevant and you think worthy of uh, our listeners' consideration? Well, I made a list of the books that I've reviewed over the last well almost two years, and there's thirty thirty five of them here, and. Uh, that's a tough question because there are so many. I really enjoy reading uh, David Gessner. He is a writer who, um, in his most recent book, Leave It As It Is, is about the Bears Ears and the controversy around the Bears Ears. I think, you know, the whole Bears Ears issue, while it's not national park per se, really captures a lot of the current issues relative to uh, trying to expand, if you will, and and even just maintain a national park system or the protected land system in the country. So that's one that I would certainly uh, suggest uh, for sure. For listeners who are unfamiliar with the Bears Ears, it's a national monument that uh, President Obama designated um, in southern Utah down by Canyonlands National Park, and uh, one that uh, President Trump kind of... um, reduced greatly in size, and uh, it is a situation where many folks are looking to President Biden to reverse uh, President Trump's action, and I believe there's still litigation over it, whether or not um, President Trump actually had the the legal authority to reduce the size of Bears Ears as well as uh, neighboring Grand Staircase Escalante National Monument. I think the litigation is on hold until the, the Biden administration decides what it's going to do. Because if it decided that it was going to reinstate the national monuments, then that might raise another whole set of issues. And as I understand it, they're they're not coming forward as yet because they want to make sure if they do decide, and I think they will, to restore these monuments, they want to make sure they have a bomb-proof case to do it legally. Well, that'll be an interesting development. Yeah, because I believe, and I'm kind of sketchy on this, but uh, Supreme Court Justice John Roberts, Chief Justice, in a um, opinion dating back to, I don't know if it was earlier this year or late last year, concerning the um, Seamounts and Canyons National Monument off of Cape Cod, said something um, that opened the door for um, reducing the size of a national monument. Um, are you familiar with that, John? No, I'm not. Yeah. Uh, unfortunately, my memory's kind of rusty on it, but the takeaway was that he left the door open slightly for proponents of reducing the size of a monument. So um, 
whether or not that comes up, um, I'm sure if the Biden administration restores the size of Bears Ears, we'll probably see some more litigation down the road. I would think so. I think it's almost inevitable. I'd throw in one other I'd mentioned. It isn't about national parks per se, but it's by uh, Naomi Oreskes, and it's Why Trust Science. Now, this may be coming at it from an, from an odd angle, but right now it seems to me the crisis in terms of basing much of our policy, whether it be regarding pandemics and vaccines or management of national parks, needs to be based on science. And there is a kind of, a, I guess you'd call a mistrust of science growing in our society. Looking through the American Covenant again here, where, where Maclis and Sukup uh, stress the importance of science in guiding national park management. And if we don't understand science and how it works and what its limitations are, as well as its strengths, then we're never going to get to the point where we're able to uh, really build our management policies and things on the scientific foundation that is lasting. So anyway, I, that may be an odd one to suggest here at this point, but books about the nature of science are, I think, absolutely critical these days. They are. And um, one that you recently reviewed, I believe, was by Doug Chadwick, Four-Fifths of Grizzly, A New Perspective on Nature. Yes. Talk about looking at science and everything around us in the natural world. He had some unique perspectives on it. Yes, he did. Absolutely. And he's had a whole lifetime of work in wildlife management and uh, journalism on which to build this rather fascinating book put out by Patagonia of all places. Yeah, yeah. No, definitely a dream job, I mean, to uh, be able to travel the world and enter these natural settings and have time to contemplate um, what's going on. That's right. His previous book was about Gobi grizzlies. Uh, the, the grizzly bears of the Gobi Desert. Or, and that's a, imagine that, being able to go over there and work with scientists over there to, to tell the story of the Gobi grizzlies, which are rare, but they're hanging out there in the, in the Far East. And he's quite the writer. You know, um, the literary world, when it comes to national parks, is as rich as the national park system is. I mean, sure, the Yellowstones and the Grand Canyons and uh, Denali's and Wrangell St. Elias get a lot of attention, but the national park system is extremely diverse, and um, it includes many of the national battlefields back east. And one of the most fascinating books I found is a, uh, a coffee table book. It's huge. It must weigh a couple pounds, three pounds or so. Civil War Battlefields, Walking the Trails of History. And this is a, a gorgeous book by David Gilbert. And he goes from the Battle of First Manassas to Appomattox Courthouse in this book. And what's really interesting is he, he stops at nearly three dozen battlefields along the way. And he sets the scene at each location by laying down in stirring prose, as a writer would, the events that took place there. He's recounting, he's presenting the battles that took place there in in his eyes, as if he was on the ground when they took place. And then he takes you on walks through the parks. It's just, just a wonderful approach to exploring the, the Civil War battlefields. 
I don't know that book, but I, I have to find it because I've, I've also, as my wife calls me, a cannonball. I like to go, go and travel, <laughs> and travel uh, visit the parks, uh, visit the National Historic Sites, the battlefields and such. And I never cease to uh, be amazed by what went on there. Constantly turning out stories. You know, another, another um, favorite of mine is um, readers, the Rocky Mountain reader, the Grand Canyon reader, the Yosemite reader, just... Uh, collections of, of essays and articles specific to those parks. And the Rocky Mountain Reader, Rocky Mountain National Park Reader, to me kind of broke the mold a little bit in that um, the editor who oversaw the book, James Pickering, he assembled narratives crafted by those who homesteaded the land in today's national park. And he's got pieces from naturalists such as Ann Swinger and Stephen Tremble, Sue Ann Campbell, and even some mountaineers and their perspectives on this incredible landscape in, in Colorado. Let me see if I can find uh, this one passage of, uh, yeah, here it is. There's a piece from Isabella Lucy Bird. And she was an English woman who summited Long's Peak back in 1873. And at the time, she was a uh, travel writer of pretty high regard. And she published a collection of her letters from Esses Park and the surrounding mountains in 1879. A Lady's Life in the Rocky Mountains, which brought fame to the region. And it was really, really fascinating to, to be able to get their perspectives. I mean, talk about going back in time. Yeah, she was, she was I've read that, and read that Isabella Bird's account of, of her, or her ascent of Long's Peak, and how, how she was treated. And she was one tough lady. She, uh, it's a great story. It really is. And that's not what we think of when we think of people traveling in the in the 1870s in the west you know the the uh the tough guys that are out there with guns blazing she was a petite english woman who had a lot of guts yeah and of course i think if you're talking um national parks and libraries you need some photographic books um photography books what would you be without an angel adams book in your library one title came out and back in uh, 2018 Ansel Adams in the National Parks, photographs from America's wild places. And it's just, you know, what he was able to do with a camera back in the 50s and the 60s was just incredible. I mean, he didn't have Photoshop to play with. That's right. He was just an artist in the black, in the dark room. A book that I actually reviewed, I think it was last year, by Pete McBride. He's a photographer and a National Geographic photographer about the Grand Canyon, that's the title of it, The Grand Canyon by Pete McBride. And he walked the 270 miles through the Grand Canyon, photographing it all the way. It's an amazing book and just an amazing trip. Or maybe, maybe he went more than that. I think he went over, they, they had to go over 700 miles to do the 270 miles of the Grand Canyon. And he carried cameras all the way and took some absolutely marvelous photographs. So that's just another, that's just one of a many wonderful photo books that are out there. You know, I think one book that uh, we might be seeing in the not-too-distant future is by Kevin Fedarko. And um, for those who are um, National Geographic readers or uh, lovers of the Grand Canyon, he's the author of The Emerald Mile, the epic story of the fastest ride in history through the heart of the Grand Canyon. And um, as I understand it, one of the books he's working on is, you, you mentioned walking the Grand Canyon, and he and a colleague, I believe, um, have either done that or, or working to complete it. And 
totally circumnavigate the canyon from end to end and uh, tell a story from that experience. Well, he, was, he was with Kevin. He was with Pete McBride for that that hike that I mentioned. Okay, uh, yeah, I think you're right. I oh, I think right. it's the same trip, but I, I think Kevin would do a whole different way of approaching it, of course, because he's a narrative author and uh, Pete is the photographer. So I look forward to that. Because that Emerald Mile book is is wonderful, just absolutely yeah. wonderful. You know, now now you mentioned that um, my memory is coming back to me, and um, I actually saw Pete and Kevin put on a presentation down at the University of Utah talking about this experience. And uh, you're absolutely right; two totally different personalities with two totally different perspectives. And um, I'm sure the the book's going to be an incredible read when it comes out. You bet. Yeah. You know, and of course, you can't leave John Muir on the side. One of his books that I really enjoyed is uh, My First Summer in the Sierra. And that really gives you some insights into how he developed his perspectives on national parks and whatnot. And you can pick up almost any John Muir book. I've got another one on his uh, travels in Alaska before Glacier Bay National Park was a national park. And... Um, that landscape as he describes it, I mean, it doesn't exist today because the, the glaciers have retreated so far. But um, again, another another good author to put some perspective on national parks. John Muir and Ed Abbey were the two authors in my many years of teaching an environmental literature course that two students just loved his, their writing, uh, especially Abbey, because Abbey was... He was such a, um, I don't know how to put it exactly, but his the way he wrote just captured their imagination. And, and no holes barred, he said what he thought, and, and he said it with vigor. And, of course, John Muir had wrote some of the most ecstatic prose regarding his experiences in Yosemite and other places of any author out there. And uh, right. So those two were big, were very popular with young people. Absolutely. Absolutely. And of course, you know, Ed Abbey, um, Desert Solitaire, The Monkey Wrench Gang, um, Down the River is a nice collection of short stories that he wrote on his experiences on the, mainly the Colorado River. Yes, absolutely. You know, and one other author that I like, um, this name will resonate with national park lovers, um, Paige Stegner, the son of Wallace Stegner. And I came across one of his books, and it wasn't specifically about national parks, but rather it was about the outdoors and rivers. He, he loved r- run rivers. The book was called, or is called, Adios Amigos, Tales of Sustenance and Purification in the American West. And uh, I was fortunate enough to interview him about the book and uh, got to ask him what his favorite river was. And surprisingly, he said the Yampa River. It goes through Dinosaur National Monument. It wasn't wasn't the Colorado through Canyonlands or through Grand Canyon National Park, but the Yampa River. Yeah, he wrote he wrote a wonderful essay that I remember about his taking his taking students down the San Juan River. Right, one of his, one of his outings. That was great. Yeah, I think that's in this uh, anthology as well. We're talking today about uh, national park books. Um, This is Kurt Repencheck, Editor-in-Chief, National Parks Traveler. I'm joined by John Miles, a colleague who is our uh, book review editor. We're going to take a short break, and we'll be right back to get back into literature of the national parks. 
Western National Parks Association is a nonprofit education partner of the National Park Service. WNPA supports parks across the West, developing products, services, and programs that enhance the visitor experience, understanding, and appreciation of national parks. Learn more at WNPA.org. The Yosemite Conservancy helps visitors connect with Yosemite through adventures, volunteering, and the arts. It's the only nonprofit dedicated to supporting Yosemite National Park and funds grants to improve trails, restore habitat, protect wildlife, and inspire the next generation of nature lovers. Learn more at yosemite.org. The Blue Ridge Parkway Foundation is the primary nonprofit fundraising partner for the Blue Ridge Parkway. It is made up of people who have a deep love for this majestic road and want to ensure that its natural beauty and the experiences it offers endure for generations to come. Show your appreciation at brpfoundation.org. Whether it be strategy, business planning, change management, board development, executive search, or diversity planning, Potrero Group is here to help. They mix a depth of experience in the parks and land space with a breadth of best practices from other industries. For more information or to schedule a preliminary conversation, go to potrerogroup.com. P-O-T-R-E-R-O group.com. The North Cascades Institute has a large portfolio. It's an environmental learning center, training center, conference center, and leadership center all set in the splendor of the North Cascades National Park Complex. Learn more at ncascades.org. Nova Scotia, 8,000 miles of coastline dotted with colorful fishing villages, quaint coastal towns, and an abundance of scenic natural beauty. Home to two national parks, Cape Breton Highlands and Kejimakujik. Spend your nights under a canopy of twinkling stars. Spend your days exploring trails, beaches, historical waterways, and tons of cultural and recreational experiences. Visit NovaScotia.com today to start planning your natural getaway. All right, this is Kurt Repencheck. We're back with John Miles talking about books and national parks and uh, all things connected with national parks. And of course, John, there, there, there are critical books about the National Park Service and the management thereof and the different forces that uh, are weighing down on it. And Dr. Alfred Runty um, has written a couple of them. One, of course, is the, the National Parks, The American Experience, um, very well read and cited reference book that uh, Ken Burns relied on when he and Dayton Duncan came out with their PBS uh, special documentary on the National Parks. And of course, Embattled Yosemite. And uh, Al's working on the second edition of that. In fact, it might already be back at the, the publishers getting ready for, for print. Um, important books to, to open eyes into the management of the park system. They are. And one of the thoughts that comes through when you read this literature, like Al's books, is how complex the um, story is. It seems simple on the surface. You know, be preservationists just going out and finding portions of the landscape that had monumental scenery or whatever the attraction might be, deep history, deep prehistory. But then, of course, every national park story involves proponents and opponents. And it's interest, it interested me when, when I learned that Generally, the proponents of wilderness and parks tended to be urban people. 
And the opponents of these parks tended to be rural people or people who thought of those lands as their lands. Out here in this part of the West, it was often the ranchers who felt they had a property right that should never be imposed upon by, by the government. And, uh, you know, that goes on today. And mm -hmm. so the complexity of managing a land, land like that, uh, surrounded by developments of all different kinds, is amazing. And uh, so the more we know about that story, the better, as far as understanding the challenges of trying to manage these places today. No, it's got to be an incredible job. And I've told several superintendents that I would never switch places with them. <laughs> um, I mean, in the news recently, we've got uh, Point Reyes National Seashore and um, the um, decision that the Park Service came out with just the other day about um, cattle ranching and its association with the National Seashore and uh, that uh, the current leases should be extended by 20 years. Highly controversial decision. And uh, we'll, we'll see if it's not challenged in court. But again, there's so much that goes on beyond behind the scenes that we're not aware of. This is true. Yeah. I mean, the park that I know the best because I live next to it and hiked through it for 40 years is North Cascades National Park. And uh, in the story of that park and how it came to be, that was um, an interesting struggle between the Forest Service and the Park Service. I mean, people tend to think that, oh, the federal government is some sort of unified conservation entity. But in so many cases in the history of the national parks, the Forest Service opposed the establishment of national parks. It was their land and they wanted to, as they saw it, and they wanted to keep it. They didn't want to give it up. And uh, so national park proponents had a big struggle in the North Cascades to try to overcome this uh, Forest Service opposition, which was really only finally resolved by some really strong politicians like Scoop Jackson uh, up there in Washington. And uh, ultimately, the park was established. And it was a unique park because it's a wilderness park. And that's that's the story of one, one of my books that I tried to tell was how the role that wilderness has played in national park history. And, uh, you know, in the North Cascades, there were big proposals for developing the North Cascades tramways and, you know, backcountry shelters of all kinds. And so it was even after the park was established, it was a long struggle to try to figure out how to manage it as as wilderness. And all those big development ideas went by the wayside. You know, with all the pressures that we've seen on the national parks since the, the COVID pandemic arrived, um, in 2020, people are rushing to the outdoors. Um, parks are overcrowded in my mind, some parks, not all parks, but some parks. Is it a signal that we need to create more national parks to, to serve as an outlet or just do a better job of, of managing populations, visitation in national parks? Well, I think it's both, but I think it's essential that we have more national parks. I mean, I'm an advocate of that. It's my opinion uh, because the parks that we have now, I mean, some like North Cascades, because it's a wilderness park, it's not overrun with people. Right. Because it's a lot of work to get into some, to most of that park. But the parks that are accessible are just, as you say, being, being overrun. And I know there's a lot of land in the United States that would qualify uh, as a for national park status. And of course, there's arguments there. Okay, 
if we make this a national park, then it'll be overrun too. Uh, sometimes the argument to convert a national monument into a national park is opposed by those who think, oh my goodness, as soon as it becomes a national park, it's status in, is raised and, the, and you know, the, the flocks of people will come. But anyway, I think distributing people through the, through the, the, uh, the scenic and, and marvelous wonders of North America by protecting as many of them as we can is the only long-term solution, along with the short-term solutions of finding ways to distribute visitation, you know, as is being done in many parks today. No, absolutely. And I would agree with you about the need for, for more national parks. My, my great concern is that Congress is all willing to create national parks, but they're not willing to fund them appropriately. And uh, I, I got in trouble with some of my friends at NPCA a few years ago when I wrote an editorial that um, the Senate should kill a bill to create more national parks if they didn't attach the funding to maintain those parks. That said, there are some incredible places in the United States that would be wonderful additions to the national park system. Uh, most recently, The Traveler, I wrote a story about um, turning the Sierra National Forest that uh, is bordered on the north by Yosemite and on the south by Kings Canyon, turn it into a national monument. Um, Range of Light National Monument is the proposal. Um, there's the Wind River Range in Wyoming that would certainly qualify as a wilderness national park. There's a San Rafael Swell in uh, Utah that you can go back to the 1930s, if not earlier, proponents calling for it to be turned into a national park. And it would have been a lot easier a century ago than it is today because of all the, the new and competing modes of recreation out there. I know somebody... Uh, voiced their opposition to the range of light national monument because uh, they were concerned about the loss of mountain biking trails that are currently accessible in the Sierra National Forest. And certainly that's a, that's a good point to make. I mean, how do you balance all these competing needs if you go from a multiple use unit of the National Forest Service to one of the National Park Service that is, has a little bit more restrictions? Well, that's what's happened time after time in the history of national parks. I mean, some, some again, I can refer to the North Cascades, where you know the horse packers used to go in there big time. Cascade Pass, which is probably the most accessible place for hikers in the entire North Cascades National Park, was a total mess because of the way it had been treated. So when the Park Service took over, they totally changed the accessibility to for horsemen and people of that sort. And that's always going to be the case. I mean, some somebody's going to have to give something in order to uh, create a park. I mean, I'm a mountain biker. There's thousands, hundreds of thousands of miles of places to ride in in this country without riding through places like that. And I know if, if you're already doing that, you don't want to give it up. But on the other hand, in the long term, some sacrifice for the common good is necessary but you know how that is today the common yeah. is not high on people's list of priorities <laughs> so are you working any um, reviews for the traveler that we can look for in the weeks ahead yes actually i am i have you were speaking of uh rocky mountain national park there's a new book out called something hidden in the ranges by a uh, i guess she's a geologist ellen wool and it's it's a natural history, if you will, of uh, Rocky Mountain National Park. So so that's one. 
Another one is that's just out is called Canyon Mountain Cloud, Absence and Longing in American Parks by Tyra Listed, Olsted. And so and those are two. And then this one that I mentioned about the, uh, the bears in, in Alaska, Shape in the Dark by Bjorn Deal. I guess that's how you pronounce his name, D-I-H-L-E, mm -hmm. uh, Living and Dying with Brown Bears. So th those are three that are on. And then there's one coffee table book by... Uh, who was that? She's um, uh, anyway. It's about grizzly bears in the north in uh, in Yellowstone. That that's ready to go. I'll send that to you soon. Wow! Wow! Never a shortage of topics to write about. Oh, that's for sure. As you know better than anybody. <laughs> well, John, it's been great uh, kicking around uh, books today, and uh, some that definitely should be in. Um, the Park Lovers Home Library for research purposes, as well as uh, some that we should be looking for. And, and whether you're just looking to travel in the national parks or looking into natural history or cultural history or archaeology, never a shortage. Um, you know, earlier this year, I was at uh, Fort Laramie National Historic Site in, in eastern Wyoming. Um, I used to live in Wyoming. My wife's parents live in Wyoming nearby Fort Laramie. And so it's a uh, it's close to my heart. I like going there. And I, I picked up two books on Fort Laramie and the history um, going back to the fur trade days and two books with two different approaches. And I, I read them simultaneously. And it was really interesting looking at the different approaches and, and the, the weight that was given to certain events in the one book that were overlooked in the other book. But um, again, there's just so many great titles out there to, you know, you could spend the, the upcoming winter um, just reading books and getting up to date on national parks and issues around them. I think you could probably spend the rest of your life doing that, to tell you the truth. I mean, it's a, it's a huge literature. One thing we, we haven't talked about that you mentioned when we discussed doing this was what I see for trends in the national park literature. And that's another whole soft topic that we could maybe sometime talk about because there are certain trends that you can see in what people are writing about and how they're doing it. Oh, well, let's take five minutes and talk about that. I mean, you, you mentioned David Gessner and, and his book on uh, uh, Leave It Be, Leave It Alone. That was an interesting approach, I thought. Yeah, well, you know, I made a list just to see what I could come up with. Or what, what do I see as trends? Because, you know, those are broad, broad emphases or changes in emphases in the literature. And I've been reading these things. I think the first book I read was back in 1963. Stuart Udall's Quiet Crisis that got me going on this, and I've been reading these things ever since. Mm -hmm. But anyway, I see, for once, for instance, in the literature today, an expression of a real sense of loss or maybe even a fear as parks face uh, multiple threats from climate change and overcrowding and threats to iconic wildlife and encroaching development you know, the wildfires, the melting glaciers, the, the, the habitat changes that are occurring, th those appear in almost every book in some way. Some books are devoted entirely to that, not many, but every one of them these days is, is expressing that. So that's, that's one that I see. And another is a shift in the recognition uh, that the value of the parks is not just for, for recreation, that indeed the, the parks have multiple values, especially as refugia and critically important components of large scale landscapes necessary to conserve wildlife 
like migration corridors and things of that sort. The parks and monuments are like, they're the, the prime refugia that need to be connected by careful management so that like up the spine of the continent is one of the main ideas at the, at the moment. There's the, the debate over the, the nature of the wild and wilderness. Is there in fact any wilderness? Gessner goes into that quite extensively in his books because there are those, particularly in academia, who say, oh, there's no wilderness. We're in the Anthropocene and human influence is everywhere. So therefore having wilderness is just a cultural construct. There's no such thing. And that's, <laughs> there's an argument about that. That's being refuted by many, of course. And then, as we already mentioned earlier, the importance of science and the role of science and what it should play in, in management. And finally, maybe one that is just now beginning to be more and more in these books that I'm seeing is recognition that indigenous rights and knowledge need to be incorporated into conservation and public land strategies, not just in national parks, but in, in our management of public lands in general, but especially in places like Bears Ears, and in some of those Alaska parks, where way back in the 50s, there was talk of co-management by uh, native people in Alaska. It didn't go anywhere, but that was an idea that several prominent park service people were promoting, and it didn't come to pass. But today, it's even more necessary, particularly with the increased interest in social justice and the connection between national parks and social justice, like the Atlantic article, should we give the parks back to the natives, uh, so on and so forth. So those are just a few things that I'm seeing. No, it sounds fascinating. Um, and all, all are worthy. You know, I, I, you, you talked about the value of national parks, refugia and, and natural corridors and um, natural habitat. And one thing that always irks me, it seems like every year it comes up when Congress is debating funding for the national parks is that they bring the economic engine argument that every dollar spent on the national parks generates $10 in the gateway communities. And I, I think we need to move past that thinking and instead invest in the national parks for what you're talking about, for the refugia, for protecting species, for providing corridors for species, for providing, um, recreational outlets for us to escape our phones and our texts and our daily lives and, and rejuvenate ourselves. And I, I think, I just get a feeling that's always overlooked in, in terms of the dollar, the mighty dollar. And, you know, if we keep investing in gateway towns, what's that going to do to the national parks? Well, the metric that governs everything in our society is the dollar. And I don't know how we're ever going to get away from it, uh, whether it's with national parks or anything else. But clearly what we need to do, I think, is advocate for these other values as loudly as we can. Uh, that's the only thing I, I can think. For instance, here, Chaco Canyon, here to the west of us, and the, the, the encroaching oil and gas development. Well, you can, you can use the dollar and cents metric to calculate how much oil and gas or how many jobs and all of that are being produced by this. But what are you losing in terms of the incalculable historical value of the landscapes that are being encroached upon? Right. I don't know. I don't know what the solution to that is, but you're right. Absolutely. We need to figure something out. 
Well, John, I'm sure we could go on easily for another hour, but uh, we're going to have to cut it short today. We've been talking with John Miles, the uh, National Parks Traveler book review editor, as well as the author of Guardians of the Parks, A History of the National Parks and Conservation Association and Wilderness in National Parks, Playground or Preserve. Great titles to help educate yourself on some of the background issues that revolve around national parks and protected areas. John, thanks a lot for joining us today. Well, thank you. It's been great fun to, to talk with a fellow uh, enthusiast and, and compulsive book collector. <laughs> okay. All right, John. Thanks a lot. We'll catch up down the road with some of these titles once you get through them. Okay. That's our show for this week. We hope you enjoyed it. If we overlooked one of your favorite books regarding national parks, please let us know in a comment on nationalparkstraveler.org in the podcast section. Next week, we'll be talking with Darla Seidels, the superintendent of Rocky Mountain National Park. Among the topics we'll be discussing are efforts to reduce congestion in that popular park, as well as how recovery is coming along in those parts of Rocky Mountain that were burned last year by the East Troublesome and Cameron Peak wildfires. For The Traveler, this is Kurt Repencheck. See you in the parks. Washington State is graced with three spectacular national parks, each different and special in their own unique ways. As the official nonprofit partner and the only philanthropic organization dedicated exclusively to supporting these parks through charitable contributions, Washington's National Park Fund has a mission to raise private support to deepen everyone's love for, understanding of, and experiences in Mount Rainier, North Cascades, and Olympic National Parks. Share your passion for these parks at WNPF.org. Do you love one-click shopping? With our partner, Interior Federal Credit Union, you can earn rewards just by making online purchases. You're missing out on rewards points if you're not using their Visa credit and or debit card. By adding these cards to your online shopping cart with Amazon, Walmart, or other shopping retailers, you can earn a point for every dollar you spend. Binge watching a lot with streaming services like Netflix and Hulu? Use their card for recurring payments to earn points as well. Visit their website, interiorfcu.org, and read their blog for more details and how to apply. Acadia National Park is one of the 10 most popular national parks in the United States. It's also one of the smallest and most vulnerable. That's why Friends of Acadia exists. Friends of Acadia is an independent organization of passionate people, inspiring those who love this magnificent park to make a real and lasting difference for Acadia. You can make a difference at friendsofacadia.org. The Grand Teton National Park Foundation is a private, nonprofit organization that supports projects that protect and enhance Grand Teton National Park's cultural, historic, and natural resources. By funding initiatives that go beyond what the National Park Service could accomplish on its own, Foundation donors improve the visitor experience and provide benefits to the National Park System for decades to come. You can see their successes at gtnpf.org. The composers and musicians at Orange Tree Productions have created a unique collection known as the National Park Series that has grown to include more than 30 CD titles. Composed against the backdrop of a park's sounds of nature, these musical scores will connect you with these beautiful places and take you there, at least in your mind. 
This collection is the number one selling National Park audio series in the world and provides the background music for National Park's Travelers podcast. Visit them at orangetreeproductions.com. Editing and production work for the National Parks Traveler podcast is done by Splitbeard Productions. You can learn more about us at splitbeardproductions.com. National Parks Traveler is a 501c3 nonprofit media organization that provides daily editorial coverage of national parks and protected areas. Traveler's coverage is made possible by reader and listener donations. Visit us at nationalparkstraveler.org.